Well, good morning. So good to see you all. I'd like to welcome those of you who might be our guests today at Sunset Bible Church. Add my welcome to the others that have already been mentioned. And I'd love to have you open up God's Word to um, Hebrews chapter 11, where we will continue our series today in Hebrews and actually come to the final sermon in chapter 11 this morning. As you do so, I, I want to tell you a little story that happened uh, two weeks ago. I was in first service and I got a text from my wife. Uh, it's kind of a strange text. She sent me a picture of an egg. Now, why would Karen send me a picture of an egg? Well, uh, she was still at home getting ready. We had Caxton and Liz Buru staying with us for the month. And um, she got up and said, I'm going to prepare myself some breakfast. I'm going to make eggs for myself. And she opened up the fridge, opened up the carton, and there were only five eggs left. She thought, well, Caxton and Liz will both want eggs. What do I do? Now, if it were me, I'd probably just eat all five eggs and, you know, feign ignorance. But, you know, she's nicer than me. So, so she's like, oh, I, I want them to have a good breakfast. They're going and speaking at a church today. So I'm going to take one egg, and I'll leave two for each of them. And that's why she texted me, because as she cracked open that egg and put it in the pan, out came two yolks. It was as if, though, God said, Karen, you sacrificially chose one egg, and I will give you two. Now, we were talking about, like, what's the probability of this? And I mean, it, it's pretty slim, because they, they estimate about one out of every thousand eggs has the double yolk. Uh, I eat eggs, like, almost every morning for breakfast, and I've never had one. So the odds of picking the box that has the double yolk egg, getting down to just five of those eggs left, and her picking just that one, well, it's got to be incredibly small odds. Maybe not outside the realm of probability, but, you know, I wouldn't be too quick to dismiss God's hand here. Now, the reason I bring this up isn't to say, you know, was this a miraculous act of God or not, but... I see it as an illustration of Hebrews chapter 11. We've been reading all these stories of these incredible people of faith who, who did these acts of faith, and, and God rewarded them with miraculous victories. And it's almost as if Karen's story could be written into that. By faith, Karen took one egg, but she did not go hungry, for she was looking forward to a better breakfast at her father's table. You know, so... It could go, but here's my question for you. This is what I want to ask. Is the point of Hebrews 11 to teach us that faith always results in two egg yolk experiences? Is our expectation that the life of the person of faith should always encounter the miraculous, that we should walk away victorious? And I would say this, that if we think Hebrews 11 is teaching us that Faith is a way to have the outcome we want in life, or faith is the way to become victorious, we're probably missing the point of Hebrews 11. In fact, we'll come to our text today and we'll see something very surprising, that the life of faith doesn't always result in victory. And you know, one of the things that I'm going to come back to, but as, as we think about this two egg yolks, I think the most amazing thing of that whole thing had nothing to do with the two yokes. I'll let you think about what was the most amazing thing. You can ponder that. We'll come back to it in a little bit, okay? Um, we'll come back to the egg illustration. But before we do, I want to pray, and I would like to read our passage for today. We'll be looking at verses 30 through 40 of Hebrews 11. And um, uh, let's pray and ask God for his help in this, shall we? Pray with me. 
Uh, God, we are thankful for this morning. Thank you so much for giving us your word, for being the kind of God who, as holy as you are, as mighty as you are, as powerful as you are, you are also a God who is loving and near, and you want to be known. You want us to know you. You want us to walk in your way. And as we open your word this morning, God, we pray that you would reveal yourself through this word. We pray, God, that you would give us hearts that are soft and teachable, that you would help us to have ears that are open and ready to listen. And God, we know that as we learn more of who you are, God, your desire is that we would shift our feet and walk towards you, that we would draw nearer to you. But God, we can't do this in our power, in our own strength. We need your help in it. And knowing that you are the God who wants to be known and knowing that you are a faithful God and a loving God, we have uh, great assurance that you will help us in this process. So we ask for this this morning with great confidence in you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for uh, your, your, your word that you've given us, the freedom to open it. And, and we ask for your help. So we pray this in the name of Jesus. We pray it through the Spirit. Amen. Well, I'd like to read then our passage today, and then we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. But Hebrews 11, verse, starting at verse 30 through the end of the chapter. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would not would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So there's our passage from today. A little bit of quick review as we come to this. As we've been studying this book of Hebrews, we've seen that the writer wants us to have a bigger picture of Jesus. He wants us to see how great Jesus is, and he wants us to hold on to Jesus. Unless we think that that is just a theoretical concept, as we come to Hebrews 11, uh, we see that he's given us a picture of what does this look like in the real world. And he's using people of faith from our, our past, people of history, who've held on to the promises of God, and this is what it looks like to hold on to God's promises. And we're not supposed to look at these people and just say, wow, what amazing people as outsiders looking in. But we're supposed to look at them and realize that we're part of the same team, that we are part of the family of faith, that they are, in a sense, passing the baton on to us, and now it's our race to run. So we come to this passage today, and as I read this passage, um, the conclusion of Hebrews 11, you, you could probably see that you could split this into two sections. 
uh, really right at verse 35. Everything prior to verse 35, not just of what we read today, but everything in Hebrews 11 prior to verse 35 could kind of be labeled as those who were made strong in their weakness. There's this sense that faith results in victory. Uh, These people did, you know, made choices. They held to God's promises, and God brought great victory. But right at verse 35, there's this very surprising change. And we see a different group of people, people that sometimes we see that people of faith experience crushing defeat. And we're going to deal with both today. But let's look at the first, those who were made strong. As we look at this list, this really has been the theme so far of Hebrews 11. Uh, And I think verse 34 really summarizes it up well, that these were not simply amazing people that had some extraordinary inner strength. They They were made strong in their weakness. Really, the point here is not to marvel at these people. I mean, we can admire them. We can marvel at the miraculous Uh, victories they had. But at the end of the day, if we walk away and say, wow, what amazing people, and and these guys are like the prototypes of what we should be, we're missing the point because we should be marveling at how great God is. That's the point of this. And really, if we look at it, I mean, if we think that these people are great people, um, we have some problems here. These were actually very broken people. They were messy people. I mean, he, just in our list today, Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a scoundrel who behaved like a pagan king. Uh, Barak was a fearful and passive leader. Samson broke every element of his Nazarite vow, and he, he pursued pleasure and vengeance more than he pursued God. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Samuel was really, in all accounts, a terrible dad who enabled his kids to do terrible things. But you see, as we look at these people, the point is this, that God is demonstrating his power in broken, weak people. That despite their flaws, there there is one thing here that we should pay attention to, is that they had heard God speak, and they believed what God said. They held on to God's promises. And holding on to what God's promises informed some of their key actions. But but this is part of the the point as we look at this, as as we look at it and we say, man, I'm a weak person. I'm a broken person. I make mistakes. It's to realize God works through me too. God chooses to work through jars of clay easily broken to demonstrate his glory and his greatness. This is really important because we need to understand God does not choose us because we're so great or that we have something impressive inside of us. And you know, sometimes this is what I hear kind of in popular Christianity. And popular Christianity is oftentimes very optimistic messages. Very, they're intended to be uplifting and encouraging and, and hopeful. But so often what I see is messages that are focused on the human rather than focused on God. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I ran into a, a post on social media. It had a lot of likes on it, and it said this, if God has placed a Goliath in front of you, he must believe there's a David inside of you. And that sounds hopeful, but there's a problem here. Because you see, 
what this is saying is there's something inside of me that's so great. And, and, and please understand this. God never looks at us and says, wow, that person has a really high ceiling. Or wow, she really has potential. You know what? I could really use her on my team. If I could just get that person on my team, I could really accomplish a lot. Did you know God never says that? No, God chooses the least of us to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill my mission so that everybody knows it's about me. I'm doing it. And I don't think that's a pessimistic view. If anything, I would say if God puts a Goliath in front of me, it's not because there's a David inside of me. It's because I have the same God that David had. And God demonstrates his power. So, so I want us to see that today. Now, as we look at this list, you see in verse 33, there's kind of a shift here. The writer shifts from speaking about people by name to kind of getting more and more general here. He talks in 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Uh, We can figure out who some of these people are that he's referring to. Who stopped the mouths of lions? Well, Daniel. Quench the power of fire, probably still has like the life of Daniel in view, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stood before the king Nebuchadnezzar and said, bow down to this golden image of me, or you're going into the fiery furnace. And they said, no. Going on, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, but put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. In the Old Testament, we have the widow of Zarephath, whose son died, and Elijah raised him back to life. Uh, And we have the Shuamite woman, whose son died, and Elisha raised him back to life. As we look at all these instances, these victories, it would be easy for us to think that the normal thing is a victorious outcome for the person of faith. After all, the majority of chapter 11 is these stories of victory. This This is what the norm is, right? And I'd say, hold on a second there. Because then we, we get to verse 35, and we have that shift come at us. And it's, it's unexpected. It's surprising, but we need to think about it today. Verse 35, I would label this section as those who face defeat. And I want to read 35b through 38 just to get it fresh in our heads before we talk about it. The writer says, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were sown, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You know, at this point in this section, we no longer know exactly who the writer is talking about. You shifted to complete generalities here, and there's many scholars who try to hang certain historical figures on these these, these statements. Uh, some people look at uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the other prophets that just by historic tradition were said to be killed in some of these ways. Other scholars look to the intertestamental period. That's the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, they point to things such as Second Maccabees, not part of the Bible, but part of Jewish history and tradition. But Second Maccabees 7 tells a story of seven Jewish brothers and their mom who are brought into the court by the tyrant, the evil tyrant, Antiochus. He had invaded Israel. He was wanting people to desecrate themselves, to bow down to him. And he said, hey, you're going to do this, and if you don't, I'm going to torture you. And the torture was absolutely horrific. 
It would involve cutting out of the tongue, preceded by scalping the person, cutting off the hands and feet, and finally burning them alive in a fire. And each brother saw what happened to his older brother, and each one down the line refused to give up. And it's fascinating just to see what they say, because all of them end up saying things along the lines of, you can take this body away from me but I'm not going to turn my back on God because he's the creator of the universe and he's going to give this body back to me someday. You can have these hands and these feet. I'll forsake them for the sake of God's law because he'll give them back to me someday. They had this faith. So some people wonder, is the writer having Maccabees in mind? Or uh, some writers even look as far as like, say, John the Baptist and say, well, John the Baptist was imprisoned and he was executed for standing up for his faith. And here's what I think the the writer is doing here is I don't think he has any single person in mind here. I I think what he's doing is he's he's being um, very general on purpose because what we see here is the reality of the family of faith is such suffering is not uncommon. In fact, it's surprisingly common among the family of faith. It's not hard to find people within history, that these verses would apply to. And what's fascinating is that even though this is the shortest section of Hebrews 11, I would argue that this is actually the most common thing that the family of faith experiences. And even though the stories of victory are the biggest part of Hebrews 11, they're very specific and they are actually the exception In fact, today we can think about suffering and we might think, oh, that happened back then. And the reality is today around the world, there are more Christians who are suffering for their faith and being persecuted and being beaten and imprisoned than any other time in the history of the church. That's the reality. We're we're somewhat sheltered from that in the United States of America, but this is surprisingly common. What I want us to see, though, today is I want us to see why God allows such suffering, how it fits into his plan. And, and, and I want us to see this because even me labeling this section as those who face defeat is very misleading. Because the reality is what appears to be a list of people who died in defeat and weakness is not true defeat. Such people are actually God's greatest demonstration of his power and his victory. Now, Way back when, I'll use an example to kind of illustrate this. Um, We were in Hebrews chapter 2 back in January, and I had read a story um, from a missionary at that point that I think um, helps illustrate this point that I'm making very well. I'm not going to reread the story, but I do want to summarize it uh, for you today. There's a story of a man named Paul Hybert. He was a missionary in India, and he writes a story of Um, a time when he was a missionary, one of his students came and said his village had been overtaken by smallpox and nothing had helped so far. And he was asking Hybert to pray. And especially the big deal was one of the Christian girls, a little girl was sick with smallpox and he wanted Hybert to pray. So Paul Hybert prays and, you know, his hope and his expectation is that God would heal this girl because this pagan village is watching And of course, it would be amazing if she was healed and the pagan village could see that God was a God of power. Um, But unfortunately, what actually happened was the the little girl died. And Hybert was utterly and thoroughly defeated. He thought to himself, man, God, how how could you let this happen? When a, a pagan village watched, how could you let this happen? 
And he was shocked because he ran across his student again a few weeks later, and he found his, his student rejoicing. And he thought, how can you be rejoicing when this girl died? And, and here's what the student said. I'm going to read the quote from the student. The student said this, said the village would have acknowledged the power of our God had he healed the child. But they knew in the end that she would have to die. When they saw in the funeral our hope of resurrection and the reunion in heaven, they saw an even greater victory over death itself. And they've begun to ask about the Christian way. You see what's being said here? See, every miraculous healing is a temporary thing because eventually you will get sick again. Eventually, all of us face death. But when Christians demonstrate that we have amazing freedom, freedom from death, that we have the hope of resurrection, that's an incredibly powerful testimony to a watching world who's enslaved by the fear of death. And I believe that this is one of the things that God uses to demonstrate his power and to build his kingdom. As we come to verse 39 and 40, I want us to think about how this applies to us. Verse 39 says this, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. I take the word perfect there to mean complete, that these people had held on to their faith. They never saw what they had hoped for realized within their lifetimes. But the story's not over. We're a part of their story. It's as though we're being handed the baton, that we're part of the same race. But notice that we've been provided something better. See, they looked forward to a Messiah, a promise of a Messiah. They looked forward to the promise of a new covenant. Whereas we now, we look back and we see how God fulfilled his promise of the Messiah. We see how God fulfilled the new covenant. We get to be partakers of the new covenant. If anybody should hold on to their faith, it should be us because we have so much more information. We, we see so much of God's faithfulness. We should be all the more convinced of his, his faithfulness. And so we're brought into the same team. And to borrow the wording used in the next chapter of these being a cloud of witnesses, we join them. We become God's witnesses to a watching world. Now, while you think about that word witness, what is a witness? Witness is just merely somebody who tells others what they know to be true. And what's really amazing to me is that Jesus wants us to be his witness. That's, that's the main job he's given us to do. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us to empower us to be his witness. This is what Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1.8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you will be my witnesses Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The main thing that the Holy Spirit empowers us to be is God's witnesses. Now, sometimes this happens in miraculous ways, and certainly in Acts, we see a lot of miraculous things. But I want to see one of the main ways that the Holy Spirit empowers us to be witnesses to a resurrected Jesus is the boldness that he gives us, even in the face of hostility and in difficulty, and in persecution. In Acts, they immediately faced persecution. Yeah, amazing things were happening, but they were also imprisoned and beaten. Some Christians were stoned. Um, and, and it's amazing to me because in Acts 4.29, the believers pray and they ask, 
that the Holy Spirit would grant them the power to be bold witnesses, that he'd give them boldness. And and as I look at this, and as I think about this, I I believe this, that God desires us. If you are a, a child of God, if you are trusting Jesus as your Savior, God wants you to be a witness. And the Holy Spirit empowers you to be a witness. And we learned something um, pretty important about being a witness in Hebrews 11 here today. A few things I want us to, to see here. Witnesses, first of all, are ordinary people trusting an extraordinary God. We're not called to be superstars. Why does God want ordinary people to be his witness? Well, let's think about it through just a, an analogy. Let's think about commercials, for instance. You turn on the TV and you see a commercial or a burger restaurant. The camera angles are great. The lighting is professional. Uh, the food has been coated in motor oil to look shiny and tasty. Like everything's professional. And they say, this is the best burger in the world, right? So there's one witness. On the other hand, your friend comes to you one day and says, oh man, I just went to this restaurant. It was life-changing, and your friend pulls out their phone, and it's an old, bad phone with a bad camera. And they're like, look at my food. And, you know, the pictures are kind of blurry. They're not in focus. The lighting's not very good. No motor oil on the food to make it look appetizing. But they're like, this was life-changing. you got to go there. Now, of these two witnesses, which one is more professional? Well, the burger restaurant, right? Much more professional. Which one is more compelling? Probably your friend, right? Because you identify with your friend, an ordinary person, someone you identify with, someone you relate to, you say, man, i got to go change this, try this life-changing restaurant. You know, when we come along and, and we say, man, Jesus will change your life, there's a resurrected Savior, what do people need? Do they need a professional production of some superstar they don't identify with? Or do they need an ordinary person they identify with saying, Jesus changed my life? And I tell you this, there is incredible power in an ordinary person that's been changed by an extraordinary God. So this is the first thing. God uses ordinary people. And, and, and the reality is that oftentimes in the witness that God calls us to, it's a witness that comes with difficulty and suffering. Because here's the thing. Jesus came and suffered for us. The Bible says Jesus, God loved us so much that he sent his only son People read this, and, and they might read it. It might just seem like words on the page. But, but then when someone comes along that they identify with, that they understand, that they relate to, who says, I'm suffering in the name of Jesus, when they see someone suffering in the name of Jesus, friends, that becomes the most convincing thing that God actually loves me. Sometimes we think people need greater apologetics, a better argument. Maybe we think people need to get into this room and hear an eloquent sermon or something like that. What people really need to see is someone they identify with who has a resurrection hope in their life. Sometimes that comes in victorious ways. Sometimes it comes in difficulty and suffering. But let me tell you, an ordinary person living with the freedom of an eternal hope is the most compelling witness that someone can encounter. So God calls us to be his witnesses. He calls ordinary people to demonstrate his power through. Now, witnesses then are people who put their faith in God, not in their agenda for God. This is very important. 
Witnesses are people who put their faith in God, not their agenda for God. Faith's not a tool to get what we want. The wording that the, the phrase agenda for God, I'm borrowing, I credit Tim Keller with this as he speaks on the topic of faith. He points out people that sometimes come along and say, you know, I prayed this prayer and, you know, God didn't come through. The outcome, I didn't get the outcome I wanted. Or I trusted God for this and, and God failed on me. And, and when you say that, you're not putting your faith in God. You're putting your faith in your agenda for God. And that will never work out for you. Because faith is not something that's dependent on the results. Faith is something you have regardless of what life brings your way, the good or the bad. I may get sick. I may be mistreated. I may have my dreams unrealized. All sorts of temporal things may not work out for me. But my faith is not in the temporary. It's not in this world. My faith is in a resurrection and a new creation. See a picture of this, I, I'd go back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they faced King Nebuchadnezzar, this is what they said to him in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Listen, listen to what they say. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Do you hear what they're saying? King, we believe that God can deliver us from this furnace. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not bowing down. Did they have their faith in God or an agenda for God? Well, they had faith in God, not in their agenda. Whether they survived the furnace or not, they had faith in God you know, and I think this is so important because sometimes I hear this and, and, and my heart breaks. I've had friends who've undergone great sickness with incredible faith, people of, of, of great faith who faced cancer, terminal cancer. Within this church, we've had many people go through that. And sometimes what gets said is, you know, the reason you're not healed yet is because you don't have enough faith. And that's so wrong because that's believing in an agenda, not in a God. You know, sometimes God's plan is for us to go through sickness, even to the point of death, so that we might demonstrate a greater hope and a greater freedom that the world who is enslaved to death has, has, has no grasp of. But this brings us to our next point, that witnesses are people who hold to Jesus and trust him to give them strength. Witnesses are not called to generate their own strength or resilience. And I, I say this because when we hear about people who hold on to faith even to the point of death, we might say, but how did they do that? I mean, standing in front of you right now, I can't say I have the power to do that. But here's the thing. It's not something that we generate from within us, that this comes as a gift of God, his grace, as we hold on to Jesus. Last week, we had Tim Glessner open God's word with us, and he made this statement. He said, faith is not an object. Faith, faith is not its own thing. Faith is not like some superpower that you either have or you don't have. Faith has an object. And faith is only as good as the object. Okay? So in our world today, we often think, talk about faith as, you know, you just got to have faith. It's just important to have faith. It doesn't really matter what you have faith in. It's just important to be a person of faith. And, and friends, that, that is not true. Your faith is only as good as the object in which your faith is in. 
My mind goes to um, the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. I don't know if you saw that or not. Fantastic series. They details what happened with the number four nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl and the events that followed. They tried to be very historically accurate and upfront about areas that they, you know, modified a little bit. But one of the things that stood out to me is as this this uh, initial meltdown occur, occurs, the um, various communist party leaders are together in a bunker at Chernobyl and they're they're discussing what's going on. And the party line is, you know, this really isn't that bad. This is just a small fire. It's going to be contained. Don't worry about it. Other people in the room are saying, hey, hold on a second. The sky is literally glowing. You know, there's, there's things going on. I see people like with their skin, you know, looking really bad. Um, I think this is worse than a fire. We should evacuate the city. Okay, so there's this discussion going on. And then the, the, the older, you know, communist party member, the, the, the main guy in the room gets everybody's attention. And this is what he says. Listen, he says, sometimes we forget. Sometimes we fall prey to fear, but our faith in Soviet socialism will always be rewarded. Now the state tells us the situation here is not dangerous. Have faith, comrades. And he goes on to say, you know what? We're going to lock down the city. No one leaves. We're going to cut the phone lines. We're going to control information. We're not going to let people get run over by fear. Everything's fine. And at the end of his speech, he says, yes, comrades, we will all be rewarded for what we do here tonight. This is our moment to shine. And the room erupts in applause. Well, their actions resulted in thousands of deaths that were unnecessary. Eventually, many of these men would be put on trial and imprisoned as criminals. But my, my, my mind goes to this. Our, our faith in Soviet socialism will always be rewarded. Were they men of faith? Oh, they had tremendous faith. They held unwaveringly to their faith. But the problem here is what they had their faith in was a faulty thing that couldn't save them. See, it's not a matter of if you have faith or not. It's what is the object of your faith. And this is the amazing thing when it comes to being the witnesses of Jesus. Is many religions say, hey, there's life after death. There's paradise to be had. But Christianity is unique in, in, in saying, we're not telling you have faith that there's life after death. We're tell, we give you a person who's been resurrected to have faith in. We give you a, a, a resurrected Savior. This is where your faith lies. The object of our faith is a risen Savior, a Savior who conquered sin and death. And then we then can look at him and say, I believe that I will be resurrected just as he was resurrected. If he wasn't resurrected, what are you basing your hope of resurrection on? So kind of summarize here, I want to bring us back to the, the egg yolks. Now, I said uh, earlier that I didn't think the most amazing thing about this illustration is that there were two egg yolks. So what's the most amazing thing? Why does this demonstrate? Why is this a good illustration of Hebrews 11? Well, because Karen didn't make her decision expecting a reward. There's been many times in her life where she has sacrificed and that has gone unnoticed or unrewarded. In fact, the majority of her life has been a one-yoke life. But what I think is really the amazing thing is that God took a sinful heart and redeemed it to bring a person to the place where she 
loves others sacrificially the way that Christ loved her. You see, I don't think it would have been any less a demonstration of God's power if that egg only had one egg yolk, because come on, be honest, what is a bigger demonstration of God's power? What's a bigger miracle, an extra egg yolk in an egg or a changed human heart? And frankly, we're not talking about eggs or the willingness to sacrifice part of your breakfast. It's just an illustration. What I'm talking about is that when you do the right thing, even if it means giving up substantial financial gain, or, or when you sacrificially give to God's mission, you're demonstrating to a watching world in a profound freedom and power to people who are enslaved to the power of money and materialism. When you willingly do the right thing, even if it means people are going to belittle you and mock you, you demonstrate God's power to a world enslaved to the fear of man. When you face sickness and death with the hope of resurrection, you demonstrate God's power to a world enslaved to the fear of death. That's what I want us to see today, is that God uses ordinary people to be his witnesses to demonstrate the most profound reality of his power that has freed us from sin and death. Now, I want to bring us then to respond to God's word this morning in communion, and I want us to look at 2 Corinthians 4. I want you to hear the words of 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 13, because Paul talks about this, this hope that we have. What is this hope we have? If our hope is not in this world, and it's not in this life, what is our hope? And he says this in 2 Corinthians 4.13. He says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I, so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Listen to what he says. So do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You hear that? Light, momentary affliction. You realize who's writing this? Paul, the guy who had been shipwrecked, who'd faced beatings, who had been stoned, who had been afflicted, who had been imprisoned time after time, who eventually was, was killed for his faith. How could he call this light momentary affliction? Is he belittling the human experience? Is he, is he belittling our suffering? Is he making light of it? I don't think he actually is. I think he has a picture of what's to come in the new creation, in a new resurrection body that's going to be so glorious It's not belittling what's happened, but it it causes it to fade away because it's so amazing. You know, in in the new creation, there's nothing about this world we're going to miss. There's never going to be one time where you say, boy, I'm sure glad I'm here, but I sure wish I got the chance to do fill in the blank. Or boy, this is a nice place, but you know, I sure miss Powell's Donuts or, you know. No, there's nothing that's going to cause you to say that. My friends, it's like if I lost $1,000. That'd be really stressful for me. But I turned around the next day and won the Mega Millions lottery. 
Would it mean losing $1,000 wasn't important? No, but it would sure change my perspective a lot on it, wouldn't it? It sure diminished that down because what happened on the other side was so glorious. This is what Paul is looking at. He's saying, what's your hope in? Is your hope in this world working out for you? Is your hope in your body always working the way it's meant to work? Is your hope in your dreams being fulfilled? Is your hope in your stock portfolio being healthy and growing? Friends, our hope is not here. Our hope is in a risen Savior. So as we come to the Lord's table today, I want us to then remember the object of our faith, a risen Savior who conquered sin and death. We're reminded that we're not alone in seasons of suffering because we have a Savior who willingly suffered for us. You know, I think that's another thing for us to consider. Sometimes people hear about that sometimes God's plan for us does include suffering. And we might think, man, what kind of God allows us to suffer? Well, the same God who willingly suffered for us whose best for us isn't found in this world, but who has a greater plan for us, who loves us enough to not allow us to get attached to this world because he has something greater for us. So as we come to this morning, the communion this morning, I want us to to look at Jesus, to realize that he suffered. He took on human flesh. He was subjected to beatings. He he did all of this. He, he, he experienced a momentary affliction for something greater. The way we do communion here at Sunset Bible Church, uh, especially in these days, we have three stations set up. Um, you can get up, go to either the outer or the middle and come to the station and go back on the side aisles. If you are trusting Jesus as your Savior today, we invite you to partake of the communion. You'll find in there two cups stacked. One has the bread, one has the juice. And so as we do, I invite you to stand up and and come and get the elements. As you sit down, take a moment to prepare your heart as Pastor Luke plays the piano for us. But I'm going to invite you to stand now and come on up and... The elements that you have before you have huge significance in them. The bread that you hold in your hand represents the body of Christ. It was a real body. Flesh and bone. It's a real body. It was a body that was given for you. Torn and abused for you. The cup that you have represents the blood of Christ willingly spilled to pay that penalty that our sin created, that before a holy God it paid for the guilt and the shame that sin incurs. And Jesus did both these things for us and told us to remember him, not as a memorial of somebody who simply died, but of one who died on our behalf doing what we couldn't do, and then in victory was raised to life. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He said, I'm going to return again. As we take communion, we remember that. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat together. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I hope you caught that last part of that, until he comes. We proclaim a risen Savior who will return. Now I want you just to consider that for a moment. You know, seeing miraculous things is amazing, but it's not very lasting. Children of Israel coming out of Egypt, freed from slavery, saw a lot of miraculous things. How long did it take for them to turn their back on God? It's almost immediate. The disciples spent three years with Jesus. They probably saw more miraculous things than anybody on the face of the earth. And yet, when Jesus was arrested, these these men fled like scared children. It wasn't until they came face to face with a resurrected Jesus and they saw that death had been conquered, it changed everything. It allowed these men who ran for their life, every single one of them, went to their death proclaiming a risen Savior. Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, said, listen folks, if there's no resurrection, we're the most pitiful people in the world. Our faith is in a resurrected Savior. I hope you believe that this morning. I'd love to invite you to stand and I'd like to pray for us as we head out. Let's pray. God, we do, we again thank you for this time uh, that we've had this morning to open your word. And God, while this passage isn't one of the more difficult ones intellectually, practically speaking, it's very difficult. Because God, who of us can face difficulty with faith? Well, we can't apart from you. So God, I pray that this morning we've seen that you have called us to be your witnesses. And pray that we've seen that sometimes that comes in victorious ways and sometimes that comes in very difficult ways. And either way, Lord, we pray that we would be people of faith that hold on to Jesus, our Savior. God, I don't know where each person here standing right now will find themselves this week. I don't know uh, if weeks will have wonderful things in them or difficult things. But regardless of what you allow in our lives this week, Lord, go with us, go ahead of us. God, help us to be people who speak words of hope and freedom words of resurrection to a watching world. Help us to be the kind of people that point others to you. And God, we can't do this in our power. We need you. So God, you work in us, we pray, we ask. We know that you will. Lord, it's also a privilege this morning to lift up Pastor Luke and Jessica before they head out on their vision trip. Lord, we pray as well that you would go before them God, that you'd prepare the way for them, that you would make this a trip that would give them vision for where you would have them. But God, we know taking this step and obeying the Great Commission is one that the enemy protests against and fights against and puts obstacles in the way. And so God, we pray that you would protect them and that you would keep the enemy away and that you would give them a clear path as they go. Be with them, Lord, and bless them. Lord, I pray for your blessing on this entire congregation. We love you, God. We, we praise you. We glorify you. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus.
Amen.